Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> Can you hear the sound of your own voice? Yeah. Oh, baby. Oh, my God. 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 Right, back us up. Take us back to the beginning. So you were you were um, raised and confirmed Catholic, though, right? 
Yeah, so I was born in Miami Beach, Florida, and um, born into a Hispanic family, baptized six months, you know, and uh, received my, you know, was received the sacraments. But the catechesis was very, you know, weak. It was cartoons. We watched a lot of cartoons. I just remember <laughs> watching cartoons. Coloring books. Yeah, coloring books and things like that. And, um, but, uh, when I turned 13, I started to, uh, question God's existence. And, um, I remember being in mass and, and looking at everyone and looking at the priest. And I thought to myself, how do these people know all these details about a God who's never even written the message in the clouds? You know, how do we know all this stuff? It, It just seemed to me like, Everybody was trying to grab stars on a six-foot ladder. And so I became an atheist for all of my high school years. And then when I hit university at 18, um, I ran into a Baptist evangelist, a Reformed Baptist evangelist. And he got me reading the Bible. And um, so I I read the Bible. I mean, I, I would, after all my classes, I would run up to the fourth floor of the UCF library find a spot in the corner and lay down and just read and at 18. Yeah. 18. And, and so within six months I, I had a very powerful conversion experience and attended the church that that Baptist friend of mine went to. So I was a reformed Baptist for five years, you know, and they, they were, they were a very rigorous Baptist church. So it wasn't one of these like, uh, in Protestant lingo, like easy believism churches yeah. or greasy grace, you know, hmm. um, they were very adamant on conversion, you know, Saul Paul type of thing. Um, and so they preached a lot from the pulpit on repentance, the future judgment, the necessity of holiness, and the necessity of confrontational evangelism. So they were educating us, and, and I mean, the first week I was there, I already had a library given to me hmm. on how to learn Greek, how to learn Hebrew, how to read commentaries. Um, and every Saturday, we went out preaching. We went out door to door evangelizing uh, at the UCF campus. I used to gra- I used to get on the buses and grab grab the the microphone and preach to the people in between routes and um, we used to go to abortion clinics and uh, I used to preach at the free speech screen at UCF. So if anybody went to the university of central Florida between 2005 to well, within 2005, 2006, 2007, you may have seen me, um, you know, preaching out there and Yeah, so the the church I was going to saw that I wanted to do this. So the the lead pastor took me under his wing and started teaching me Koine Greek, how to do New Testament exegesis. And yeah, he got me up at the pulpit one time. I had a sermon uploaded to Sermon Index uh, or Sermon Audio. Uh, For those of you Protestants listening, you'll remember there was a, a treasure of sermons that all the Protestants used to go to. I had a sermon up there. They took it down after I left the church. 
So I, I've heard like a lot of I heard like the big secret in Protestantism is that a lot of pastors actually don't write their own sermons and they'll go and steal other pastors' sermons. Oh, really? Wow. Well, yeah, the the, the Protestant church I went to, um, he spent 20 hours in sermon preparation. I saw what he did. Wow. He would take he would take the Greek and he would literally go through a uh a line-by-line expositional exegesis. And he would read church fathers, uh, classical medieval commentaries, all the way up to contemporary commentaries, and then put together a, put together a sermon. Um, yeah, that pastor, uh, he was a Protestant. He still is a Protestant. He's a Baptist preacher. But he he has more in common with the early church than many, uh, in terms of like, preaching style and 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 the understanding of conversion he has more in common with the early church than uh, than do uh many catholics Modern, modernist catholics specifically yeah. i would think right exactly yeah mm-hmm. so okay so so you do this for a while that uh what what piques your interest in catholicism well you know when i first went to this baptist church one of the first things they tried to nail down is sola scriptura you know mm-hmm. And they would the, the 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 pastor, you know, he'd be sweating his brains out up there by the pulpit and telling people, look, if whatever I say, don't go by what I say unless what I say is in the in Bible. The if yeah. if I say something different than what the Bible says, you go with the Bible, right? So they they they're adamant about that. But after learning all the Greek that they taught us and you know how to do exegesis and hermeneutics and the, the science and method of interpreting the Bible, well, I started to come to different interpretations than the pastor. And so within a couple of years, I started popping up on the radar as a um, sort of like an insubmissive, oh. you know, sheep. <laughs> Uh, in other words, you know, the sheep the sheep huddle in one spot, and then there's these sheep that stray, you know. You were a dissenter in Protestantism, <laughs> too. You go from dissenting at this Baptist church to dissenting from Rome. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that uh, the pastor there would insist on sola scriptura, but when people disagreed with him about what the Bible meant, he grew a magisterium out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> but he would say, well, wait a minute. You know, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years and I went to seminary and I've got a THD and, um, you know, I, I have all this education and, you know, all this stuff. And so basically trying to tell you that your interpretation is wrong and what I learned is they grew, they grew two legs, you know, they, they had scripture, right? The one stool, you know, one, one legged stool. Yeah. But then when, when they were dealing with people that disagreed with them in the church, they grew two other legs. Yeah. But then when they were telling people what they believed, they hid those legs. Yeah. Um, so that guy, it's a long story short, but I ended up leaving on, on not so good terms from there. Um, Love the people there, but they uh, turned into some, somewhat of a cult, you know. Mm. They had no attachment to other churches, and um, the church went through lots of splits, you know. That's yeah. what's bound to happen in a place like that. 
So well, that's well, what I, led me I to worry. Search. I worry about that. I worry about that and what's happening even to relay it to what we're dealing with now. That's why that's why I try to have conversations with people I'm not 100% on board with, with every single thing. It's like, if you cut yourself off from the body, it's very easy to fall into a tribe or a cult where you have no exposure to the rest of the body of Christ and you can fall into an echo chamber and then you cut yourself off. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So then, okay, so now you go... Uh, all right. Yeah. So I, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I basically, I went back to search the origins of Christianity. You know, I, I went, I took all the skills that they gave me, how to do history, how to study scripture, how to, how to read a book, you know, back to the old Mortimer Adler basics. And um, I basically walked the whole horizon from, you know, going from Reformed Baptist to studying with Presbyterians, studying with Lutherans, reading all the literature I could get. And I find I found myself planted for a good time at the Anglican church. I was an Anglo Anglo Catholic actually. So I, they call it the Canterbury trail. When, 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 <laughs> even, when evangelicals find the Canterbury I trail. That. I like that. The yeah. Canterbury trail. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was, so I went to this Anglican church and by this time I'm immersed in the church fathers. Yeah. Uh, reading, you know, all all the history books that I could possibly get my hands on. And, um, yeah, so that's what really put me at the fork between Constantinople and Rome, you know? Yeah. And I really wanted to go Eastern Orthodox. I mean, I really wanted to go Eastern Orthodox because I did not want to go back to the Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic. I knew how... In my mind, I knew how inauthentic it was. You know, I you got to put put it. You know, I'm I'm living in Miami. I'm growing up in that Cuban Puerto Rican culture. Yeah, and you know, whenever we have sweet sixteens, the priest is there getting drunk with us. <laughs> um, you know, it's We're, like it's just a culture. It's just it's yeah. just what the, it's just the culture. So when I turned from my sins, my first year at university. It was just axiomatic, like, oh, the Christianity that I grew up with, that's completely false. It's completely different than what Jesus taught. Yeah. So when I was an Anglican, I had huge bias against Catholicism because I thought of it as a liberal, the biggest liberal nominal institution in the world. You thought that as an Anglican? I thought that as an Anglican, yeah. Well, it kind of is when you just deal with cultural catholicism like that right like it's so watered down you think about the catechesis you were talking about when you're growing up the coloring books and things like that so many of the kids at the school who said they were catholic were probably the worst kids in the school it just we did a terrible job of creating a catholic culture as catholics we just were bad at it yeah and and the anglican church i went to was an anglo-catholic church rob so it wasn't part of the church of england we were completely distant from Canterbury um, because of all the liberalism that broke out in the late, late in the early seventies with the Episcopal church and, you know, church of England taking on women's ordination and all this other thing. So uh, I was part of, uh, <clears throat> Oh uh, yeah. Trustworthy. Hey, nice to see you. Um, uh, so I was part of a very conservative Anglican church. Um, they, we were reading Thomas uh, Scotus. We would read, um, 
kind of like a, a, Cal, a Calvin Robinson flavor. That's right. Yeah, where 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 Father Calvin Robinson is now, that's where I was. Mm-hmm. You know, except Rome didn't ex- accept the orders of the APA. I was part of the Anglican province of America and the East Coast, which was not recognized. Our orders were not recognized by Rome at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted to go Orthodox. So I started going to Orthodox churches and I started reading everything I could on the East. And I noticed that every time uh, when I studied Rome, all I was doing was studying her scandals. That's yeah. all I did. And every time I studied a scandal, it was an automatic point on the scoreboard for orthodoxy. So I'd, I'd, I'd go through all the set of websites um, and just get, drown myself till yeah. 3 a.m. looking at all these problems in Rome. And that solidified my confidence that, okay, well, I've got to go Eastern Orthodox. But <clears throat> I noticed before I made the decision to actually go, I was actually a catechumen. You know, you had asked me if I was an Orthodox. I wasn't, but I was a catechumen and I, I used to go to the priest's house and we used to talk for hours. And, you know, I used to go on long walks with uh, another particular uh, priest from the Rokor Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. And I, I was really set in gear for it. But then I realized, wait a minute, Eric, you've been studying the scandals of Rome and making automatic three-pointers for Eastern Orthodoxy. That's not really a fair study. Yeah, You need to study Rome at its best and Orthodoxy at its best, and then compare the two. Yeah. It was a, a very much different method. And what? when I did that, I, I, I could not believe, um, you know, I spent a lot of time on my knees in adoration. Uh, I was going to a, a Catholic church to pray at the chapel I would, you know, continue going to Orthodox services in the morning on Sundays. And um, it was kind of a heart-wrenching decision, but I had to to become Catholic. Do you go to a Byzantine liturgy or an Eastern liturgy? No, I I mean, every once in a while I visit. I I go to one Byzantine Catholic church here in Orlando. Um, I'm friends with the priest and the deacon. So I go every once in a while, but no, I'm 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 actually part of the ordinary at the Anglican ordinary. So oh, I, I, okay. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of see everybody who takes their faith seriously nowadays tries to find a very reverent Novus Ordo, an ordinary parish, a TLM, or an Eastern Catholic Church. Now it's almost like pretty much anybody I talk to that takes their faith seriously these days is trying to drift away from that nonsense we were talking about when we were younger, right? That happy, clappy liturgy and stuff like people want something a little bit more serious. But so um, my favorite Christian content creator is Eastern Orthodox, which is strange, but it's not about Eastern Orthodoxy. So it's Jonathan Peugeot. Um, But it's really just because he kind of opened my mind to uh, a, a little bit of a deeper way of when you read scripture and seeing the way the world unfolds before us and stuff, but he doesn't get into orthodoxy versus Catholicism or anything. So when you were in when you were in your study of orthodoxy, was there anything there that you saw that you think is lacking in Rome, like that we could maybe pick up from from them oh. a little bit, or or is it in in the spirituality maybe or something? Absolutely, you know. Uh... In my, so it's, you know, it it goes both ways, right? Because Mm -hmm. the Orthodox Church here in Central Florida, 
Um, I'm not going to name a single name of, of a parish, but you can go to one and see liberalism. You can go to one and see that if you're not of a certain ethnic group, yeah, um, they highly recommend you not come again, but visit. <laughs> um, maybe come when there's a festival, you know. Yeah. Um, you'll, you know, other ones you'll go to, and um, it's just uh, it's wonderful. The people are great. The one one parish, uh, one Orthodox parish I went to, they were so friendly. We 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 didn't join the church at all. We were just visitors, and my wife delivered my number three, so my third son, and they scheduled all on their own to people they didn't really know. They scheduled daily uh, food drop-offs for oh, my wife. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so she didn't have to cook dinner for like two weeks. Um, and people would show up at the door we didn't even know. <laughs> um, so it was just, that was so beautiful to see a, a community like that where after yeah. after Divine <laughs> Liturgy, they all hang out at, and, you know, for coffee and donuts. And they're all practicing the fasting, you know. So Wednesday, Wednesday Friday, all the conversations are, are about, okay, what are we going to do this week? We can't use oil. Or what are we going to do this week? We can't use cheese. We can't. So there, it's like they're actually practicing the old laws of restraint yeah. that were in both the West and, like, my I named my – for my fifth son after Pope Leo the Great, you can't get more Latin West than that, right? Yeah. And if you read his sermons, he's talking a lot about fasting and specifically the regulated fasting and um, and the prayers, you know, morning and evening prayer. The the, the Catholic Church has a, a liturgy of the hours, but the new versions are just, yeah. you know, the lexicon you know the the way they've taken texts out um the, the old roman breviary is my favorite i mean it's it's great don't get me wrong but i think that the orthodox prayer structure is is more established for the common yeah. for the common person you know so yeah i think there's a lot that your common orthodox church has that most of your Catholic churches. Yeah, and and stuff that doesn't contradict anything Catholic, right? Like you're talking you're talking about two great traditions that, you know, one one develops in the east, one develops in the west. I I do kind of think that um uh Father Nick said this on the show with us uh last week like this there's, there's kind of the tendency uh for us in the west especially with our right, understanding of Hey guys, love to see Eric on the show. Uh, so there's this tendency for us to uh, view um, popping in and out of grace a, a bit strict, you know, where it's like you commit one mortal sin, that's it. I'm, I'm out of, I'm, I'm in a, I'm out of a state of grace. And and right. I think the East, the the Orthodox have have a different, you know, they're not as rigorous about that stuff. But I found that for me, that kind of thinking actually works best because it's just keeps me on guard always. And if I commit a mortal sin, it's like, okay, get the confession right away. And I think that the church in the West kind of sees it as like the way I explained it to my son, I was like, I was like, you know, if you slip up and you, uh, you know, let's just say hypothetically, you look at something on the internet, you're not supposed to, and then you die before you get the confession. Like, like one mortal sin may not send you to hell, but the church puts that, that, guideline up for us so that you 
stay on top of your spiritual life and you don't allow another one to build up because you can desensitize your conscience by continuing in this kind of pattern, you know? So I I mean, it is, it is day, day fide that you will go to hell with one more. You will go to hell. Right. Yeah, I know. It's, I know that's wrong that I said that. It's just, (laughs) I think I, 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 I completely understand what you're saying. You know, um, they, they look at it more or less as, uh, like for us, it's kind of like the plug gets pulled out of the socket, yeah. you know, whereas for them, it's like the light bulb starts to dim and you've got to really kill that light, you know, over time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it goes both ways. I mean, you, if you if you focus too much on the the healthcare format of thinking, um, you can kind of get very uncertain with what you're doing. And if you focus too much on the Latin manualist legalism, um, you can just, you know, your relationship with God is like, you know, you're in a trash compactor, like in the Death Star with Luke Skywalker and Chewbacca and the rest. (laughs) And it's like, it's ready to just close in on you at any moment. Um, That could be dangerous. Both both sides can be dangerous. It's good to have a good balance between both. Um, So, all right, so now you you're going and you're studying all this stuff, and you actually get to you have to make a decision at some point, right? So now, but you are already baptized and confirmed. So what is that? What is that process? Is it just going to confession and coming back in, or? Well, that's what I. That's so when I you know met some I met some Catholic celebrities here in town, and they didn't really know I had a, a Catholic upbringing, so they were saying, "Oh, we got to get you into RCIA and all this yeah. other stuff." But when I went to the Catholic parish I was going to go to, you know, they asked me all those questions and I got all my documents from the Archdiocese of Miami. And they're like, oh, no, you don't need to. You just need to go to confession. So <laughs> I, I asked uh, I asked for a good priest. I didn't want to just deal with, you know, because I, at this point, I, my discernment didn't go out the door. I knew exactly what I was getting myself involved yeah. with. Um, I knew that some of the parishes around me, um, you know, it was crayons and colored pencils, Catholicism, and I didn't want to deal with that. Yeah. So I, I asked for a diocesan priest that was a good spiritual counselor to hear my confession. And, um, yeah. So one evening we went to a, we went to a, a, a chapel slash cemetery and I did my confession and, uh, was received, you know, came back into the church right there. Man, so and now, what year was this? That was two. It was the end of two thousand twelve. End of twenty twelve. Let me ask you something. So, like, coming going through that that um, Protestant phase, because I've been thinking about a, a lot lately about how um, Protestantism and Sola Scriptura have, for the past, like, since the Council of Trent and since the, the Reformation, has kind of set Catholic apologetics up to be just a way to counter the reformation almost. Right. So yes, yes. it caused the reformation caused because Protestants view salvation as, you know, once saved, always saved, or, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus with your heart and confess with your lips. You get that. And I think Catholics kind of have this, uh, we kind of get, it's like, no, we're saved by grace through faith, but works play a part in that somehow, but it's, 
it's I feel like the the over the over the course of this time we've set our apologetics up just to be against Protestants and we're kind of missing out on something in that. Like I've kind of when I when I hear Jesus going through uh and saying repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I'm hearing that the gospel is the kingdom itself. Yeah. Right. And like the good news is that the kingdom is coming. It's not that when you die, you go to heaven. That's not like that's such a simple right. way to understand salvation. Like, like salvation is so much bigger. It's like the kingdom is here, you know? And it's not just like an individual based salvation. And I don't think the Catholic Church did think it was like that before the Reformation. But since the Reformation, because our apologetics are set up in contrast to Protestantism, we kind of talk like that now. Yeah, that's that. And and see, that was one of the reasons why it was tough for me to become a Catholic, because, uh, number one, most of the Catholics uh, that I met. And I I, I don't want to I'm about to say something that might throw a lot of people off, but I say it in good taste. Trust me. But when I was looking into Catholicism, the presentations that were given by like Catholic answers um, that what I saw it as more of more of a it's it, they were trying to reach more of your like your evangelical type yeah. of your non-denom right yeah. where I was part of an Anglican tradition we were we were deeply rooted in the fathers anyway we thought we were right I don't I, now yeah. I know better but we did know a number of things that kind of gave us it was harder. It was a thicker barrier to reach us, you know? So I couldn't really, anytime I looked at Catholic answers, I was like, I, I can't become Catholic through these people. Like I, I, I I see, I see that they were not really, you know, tuned into history. And one of the, one of the reasons why they're not is touching on what you're getting at. Anthony is they forgot to study the, the, the Greek schism, the Greek Latin schism and the, the, the the Coptic schism, you know, Oriental Orthodox schism. And uh, so a lot of Catholics just don't have a good education in church history. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right. So uh, first off, I like this. Is, I, I know you're not knocking Catholic answers. Catholic answers serve right. a very important purpose. There's, there's nothing to insult them. It they does. serve a very important purpose, but very Absolutely. much what we're, very much what we're saying is they're kind of set up as like, Okay, we're here to teach you how to do apologetics to Protestants because so many Protestants were yanking Catholics out of the church, right? So right. it was like, look, we need to defend, we need to equip these people to be able to defend against the arguments because your average Catholic growing up had the had the catechesis you and I did, and they yes. didn't know their faith. So when a Protestant Baptist comes up to you and starts telling you read the Bible, <laughs> next thing you know, you're at a Baptist church because you didn't hear about Jesus in the Catholic Church. So I understand what they're doing completely. I've been challenging. Um, I've been chat. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I've been challenging Trent a little bit because he, him, and Jimmy Aiken are very pro evolution, and my mm-hmm. audience is probably going to be like rolling their eyes right now because we keep talking about this, but <laughs> <laughs> we just keep bringing not this the up. Only ones. <laughs> so, but I, I like to rile Trent up a little bit. I like Trent; he's my friend, but. I think that they are taking the wrong approach with evolution and the creation narrative because I see how much damage the evolution narrative is doing. I see that it's destroyed people's faith. 
I mean, it just has destroyed people's faith. You, you're telling people that we evolved from the, you know, from nothing essentially. Your audience is constantly rolling their eyes. So anyway, that's kind of what I, I think that they need to. I think their only approach is, oh, no, 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 Catholics are totally allowed to believe evolution. And they point all the reasons why it's totally fine to believe in evolution, where they don't actually present anything saying, okay, well, this is where evolution is nonsense and it doesn't make sense or anything like that. So we've been trying to put up a little bit of a counter to that. I'm going to take a wild guess here. I'm going to say, no, you already told me. You're, are you, you, you are a young earth creationist, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, I used to believe in evolution, yeah. um, but, and, and to be honest, I teach my kids both. So I teach my kids why the evolutionary theory was developed because I find it incredibly intelligible. Like I, I think that it is a way to explain the data. I really do. In many ways, um, my blood gets heated when I study it because I, I see the destructive effects, you know. But at the same time, I don't want to just write it off because of that. So I tell my kids, look, this is why scientists believe this. Yeah. Um, but then I tell them why I believe in creationism. And I, so far, I've been pretty successful in keeping them in creationism. How, how, how old's your oldest? He's 16, but he's like three times as smart as I am. So my son's 18, right? So I have these conversations with my son, too. And a lot of the reason I, I, I try to talk about these things is I know a lot of our audience has teenagers coming up and I know I lost my faith in my teenage years and yeah. through my, mm -hmm. you know, through my early twenties and stuff. So the conversations I've been having with my son are, are, are very similar to what you're saying. It's like, okay, look, they're look, this is why they believe this. Right. But you have to really think about it. If, if they're saying that, um, uh, only the strong survive, right? And it's uh, what do they call it? Um, survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Selection. Natural selection. Right. So, so um, through through selection. Wait, what is it? Natural selection. Natural selection. Yeah. Yeah. So through natural selection, right? You you can't nature can't select a gene that's not there, right? So how can how can something become something it's not? I can understand in a species adapting within its species. Like I've used the example where when they brought European hogs here over a hundred years, they developed started to develop tusks. So that's adaptation. That's you know within a within a species. Right. But but for that pig to become a a, a dog is impossible. Like it's just yeah. it's just preposterous to say that creatures mutated like that it's just it nature can't naturally select a gene that does not exist yeah yeah so i mean look they they develop models in comparison right and, and they do comparisons and they find trends and patterns and they come up with an explanation but see there's always a gap between the data and the explanation and uh, I, I appreciate it when an evolutionist can at least admit that they are jumping into that conclusion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I tell them, look, I believe in creationism because I have a reason to believe the Holy Scriptures as the explanation for the data. You believe in evolution. I understand why you do. I don't think you're I don't think you have a low IQ because you believe it. No, but they think you have a low IQ for believing young Earth. 
Right. And, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I understand why they, they, they believe that, too. Um, but I think if, you know, you start befriending some of these folks and you're able to have more than five minutes worth of conversation. I've been successful in, in, in you know, telling, you know, showing people why there is a reason for our belief in creationism. And but okay, so a lot of the things that we're also been going through is just understanding how narratives work, right? So um, we did we did a series on the ancient world, and and we started looking at all these ancient cultures, and you start seeing that every one of them have their own creation narrative, and they have this, and it's because God put in like a desire in your heart for you to know where you came from. It's why we all love the origin story of Spider-Man, even though there's five versions of it. It's why we all love, you know, we all want to go back and watch the new origin. So everybody wants to know where they came from. So in order for them to get rid of the Christian story, they had to come up with their own origin story. There has to be another explanation. If it's not the Christian origin story, you need another origin story. So they give you this one. And this can now give you the it gives you a justification for rejecting Christianity based on we didn't come because God created the world in seven days and made Adam from the dirt. No, we come from this 13 billion year process. And it's always such an unfathomably long amount of time that like people just say billion. Oh, it's a billion years old. Like you have any idea how long a billion years is? How do you (laughs) think they know 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs shut up 65 million years ago. You know, no, nothing. Yeah, the, the, these uh, <laughs> calculations are calculations, you know. But um, one of the things I've been to- telling my kids, because right now we're going through the Old Testament, uh, so in, in our in our evening readings, we're on Exodus chapter five and six, and one of the things I pointed to them was notice how Moses will periodically give genealogies, like we're at Exodus chapter six where. Moses writes the genealogy of himself and Aaron, tracing them back to the tribes of Reuben and Levi, right? Well, the, all those genealogies in the book of Genesis, why why write those genealogies? It's because it's real history. Yeah. And Matthew and Luke one day when they ra- when they sat down to write their gospel they had to go and look Trace at those the genealogies. Yeah. That's right. So you can't. Uh, to me, I don't know how you can make full come full circle to old and new testament thought, w- disbelieving the real narrative history of Genesis. I, 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 so it's like, especially oh. when Christ even says, "If you had believed Moses, you would believe yeah. me." I mean, he yeah. chose Moses for a reason, and Christ is the yeah. new Adam. Yes. Yeah. Christ is literally the new Adam. It's like so if you if you really don't uh, oh man it's it's the thing is if we're unable to believe the story God gave us it, like don't tell me that doesn't affect your faith. Of course it does because my faith has increased since saying no 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 this is this this is believable. I have to actually believe this. Um with your kids because I fa- all right so my son is 18 now and we went up and went on a trip a couple months. Oh, yeah, it was over the summer. And I took two of his friends. We went we went upstate, and it was me and the three boys, and my brother-in-law was there. And we were talking to my son's friends. And my son's friends were pouring their hearts out to me and telling me about their upbringing. And uh, they were both raised Catholic. 
One of the kids, the father left the mother, started a new family. He stopped going to church. The other kid, the parents, the father had an affair, but the parents worked it out and they were going to an evangelical church now, but they put their family back together going to this evangelical church. Um, so I start talking to these boys about why it's important to be Catholic. And I've started like trying to explain, like, so the, the kid that's going to the evangelical church starts asking me questions about Mary. And my son, jumped in and explained to him from typology how Mary is wow. the Ark of the New Covenant. And I was like, I never had a prouder dad moment, right? It's like, okay, all these things I've been talking to him about, he's actually listening to and picking up. And it's like, don't think your kid... So I was so worried about uh, when my kids were younger about those teenage years because of my experience as a teenager leaving the faith. But if you really do catechize your children properly and teach them scripture... Once they get old enough to really grasp these concepts, they really do grasp them and they get excited about them. Yeah. Yeah. I find that with my oldest because uh, he goes to a classical uh, school and um, they teach him, they, they, they teach theistic evolution. Um, and he's kind of outnumbered, I think, in the class. Um, but he, he tells me that he has the reputation of kind of like, Oh well, what did what did he you know what did Evan say about that you know yeah <laughs> and because he seems to be more educated on both sides than most of the kids, um, so yeah, that's good good for you, man. Like you for, for anybody listening that you guys <laughs> that you have young kids, Eric's my favorite reason in theology alone. <laughs> <laughs> I like but Elijah you, Yossi. <laughs> well, you you see. Well, yeah, well, well, I'm like really good friends with Enoch with his brother. So with Fawaz Yazi, but um, you even see like uh, th there's so much room for us to all be brothers, man. Like you see uh, Kennedy popping in. He's like that whole disturbance that went on over there. So I, I think I want to uh, let's let's stay away from that. All right. So <laughs> we'll maybe we'll maybe do a short local segment and. I want to ask Eric how the fallout kind of went down over there, but let's, let's, let's keep that off of YouTube. Um, okay. So off the kids now, so this, this most recent book you wrote, um, you went back into finding the papacy in the first millennium because I've seen a lot of Orthodox, especially under Francis challenging Catholics and all these things. And I, I see they all say, well, no, Rome had primacy of, you know, there was a, there was Roman primacy, but it was never, you know, the, the papacy in, in all its uh, authority and jurisdiction stuff was kind of came much later. What did you find in that first millennium that kind of surprised you or did you, yeah. did you kind of know what you were looking for? Yeah. So, you know, as an Anglican, um, let alone Eastern Orthodox, um, I admitted that Rome had primacy in the first millennium. Uh, most Anglicans will admit that. Um, so there had to be something more than just Eric, you know, or that, uh, you know, that the church of Rome had primacy. So what I was looking for was a, if you're looking at like DNA, there's, there's a substantial, there's a, there's a substantial bit that makes up the essence of, you know, DNA. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, what is that for the papacy? Because I know two things. I know that primacy is true for Rome. And I also know that uh, 
the early centuries don't come out clear and say, oh, the Pope is infallible. The Pope can fire a deacon all the way in Asia, even yeah. if he never met him in his life. You know, um, I knew that the data did not have that, you know, so because if it did, Catholics would just point to these easy, you know, easy peasy statements. Right. Um, so I had to look for what is the what is the bare minimum that if it's there, it has to be Catholicism rather than Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's basically two things, that when Christ created the church, he established its government with the apostles where Peter was singled out as occupying a headship position of authority. Throughout so the entire gospel. Like throughout yeah. the entire gospel, you see Peter has primacy of place. Right. That's number one. So that's got to be there. But the, the Orthodox and the Anglicans are saying, amen, amen. You know, so, okay, well, that's got to be there. We all agree on that. Number two, the primacy of Peter doesn't die with Peter. It outlives him into a successor a single successor mm -hmm. stationed in a particular city, Rome. So that second part has got to be there. And number three, that this, that this, uh, this, this Roman station of Petrine primacy is so etched into the DNA of the church that it will last until the second return of Christ. Yeah. So notice I didn't say anything about infallibility. I didn't say anything about what kind of jurisdiction he has, whether it's immediate, immediate. I just mentioned three things that if you can find sufficient evidence for in the, in the Bible and in the first millennium, then you know that Eastern Orthodoxy cannot be. Yeah, it cannot be the well, it cannot be the heir of first millennium. Well, the funny thing is, I hear okay. So I do. I told you I, I listen to Jonathan Peugeot a lot, and he's always talking about hierarchies and hierarchies, and it's like we're talking about the kingdom of heaven on earth. I mean, if you're going to have a kingdom, there's going to be a, a hierarchy that keeps stacking up until you get to the prime minister and it's there's something to i know eastern orthodox make the joke and it's a meme it's like rome big therefore true like they i see that meme a lot right but there's something to the fact that the western church is the church that evangelizes the world and the eastern church kind of stays as national churches right like they don't they don't go forth and baptize the nations they don't there is something to, and I do think that's a valid argument for 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 the Roman Church, and you you have to you have to see it as a kingdom. And there's also this the prophecies in Daniel where it's talking about the um, the stone that will shatter the image of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream yeah. that covers yeah. the earth. So early in that early church. The idea that there, there, there was two things. It was there was one church and one kingdom. Like that early church was very adamant about there being one empire, 
You know, so it was going to be that the Catholic Church becomes the Roman Empire, which is why it's the Roman Catholic Church. And it really does spread and, and it goes and and baptizes the nations. It conquers all the every pagan society that comes in contact with the Catholic Church starts off raping and pillaging and then converts like it's just and I do think that's a valid argument for Catholicism. I know the East don't like it, but well, there's various ways to behold the truth. But I think the 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 course that you're taking there is ex, is extremely valid because the Old Testament prophets they foretold the times of the Messiah would be this internationalization of the worship of God through a morning and evening sacrifice from Malachi, yeah. and so what came what. What is the result of history? Which is the church that went international in spreading the gospel? Well, you know, we have two contenders, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I hate to, to, to get the Oriental Orthodox out of here. They were very successful at one point, uh, far east. Um, yeah. So I don't want to neglect that. But, but <laughs> I think that the Catholic Church has the... It has that prophetic mark from Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, Daniel, all that Danielic vision. You know, it seems to match the historical instantiation of Catholicism. And it's like, and and look, I understand we're under a very difficult time in the church right now where it seems like, look, it just seems like. Man, all these promises of the that we have in the church, and it seems very shaky. But you've pointed out that, and I and I kind of like this. It's like, regardless of the intent of the hierarchy, they clearly see there is a line they can't cross. Yeah, yeah, like they, they clearly see they they're trying to press upon it as much as they can, but there is a clear line that they know they can't cross. Yeah, yeah, I and and you know. People who have been following me since the reason and theology days, they know that I've not really changed. My criticism has been the same since mm-hmm. since we started reason and theology. Um, my criticisms go back to St. John Paul II, you know, and the things that he had did and said. Um, he He himself was not interested in changing Christian doctrine. Uh, but he introduced some things, um, and to be fair to him, it was just a, a faithful carrying on of John the Twenty Second, Paul the Sixth, and even those two were simply expanding on things yeah. that came from earlier popes. But anyway, um, a guy like Francis, you know, he's not interested in changing Catholic to- doctrine. There are a couple of things that I still have concerns about in his magisterial output, but for the most part, he knows where to keep his pinky toe at mm. the line while offering some very incoherent pastoral options. <clears throat> you uh, see, he even said the other day, he's like, this isn't dogma. 
but I hope hell is empty. It's like, dude, you are the vicar of Christ. Right. You don't say that. Like, what would, like, <laughs> this isn't dogma. So he's not changing the dogma, but he's putting the thought in people's minds. And it's like, there's a, there's a feeling like it's just, um, it, because it can get overwhelming for people, right? Like, I know a lot of people, uh, even Truthworthy, who was in here before, he's coming into the church. And he's like, man, it's just so difficult under this papacy, you know? So I think we might have him on with maybe Joshua Charles. Or He said he spoke to you the other day, and he said that you talked to him, and he's still coming into the church at Easter. But it it's a very difficult time. And I, and I, and the, the fact that people still come into the church during this confusing time is a testament to God's grace, I think. Yes. You know, that's, that's the thing. Um, you have certain Catholic apologists out there who their main concern is not so much Pope Francis uh, and, and the way Catholicism looks right now. Their main concern is how do I maintain a system to achieve magisterial certainty? Yeah. And they totally ignore the real life practical injuries that are coming out from the, the highest offices of yeah. the church. And um, I think that a lot, a lot of people recognize the, uh, superficiality there. And so I, I'm candid with people who come to me. I get messages all the time. Hey, why should I be Catholic? You know, if all this is going on, well, there's one reason to be Catholic. And that is because this is the, this is the voice of the shepherd. The, this is the church of Jesus Christ. However, if, if you can't learn how to harmonize and reconcile great lengths of sin and failures at keeping to the gospel, even in the highest offices of the church, you're not ready to become a Catholic because to be a Catholic, you need to understand that that is capable of happening. And so a lot of people are leaving the Catholic church because of this, because they can't put the two together. And uh, I, I understand. I, I have my my sympathy. You know, I I don't agree with them, but I also don't call call them schismatic because I understand what they're seeing before their eyes yeah. is is very concerning to them. So um, I think I, that- I even have I even have empathy for the people doing the explaining, right? The the, the, yeah. the Pope's explainers. I have because I think they're they're trying to just be faithful to the Catholic faith. And I think like there is there has to be a medium somewhere where you can say, okay, we're in this predicament. We know there's some weird stuff coming out of there, but I'm not leaving the church. I know this is still the church and it's you know, I'm not going to, I'm not, uh, it, it, a lot of the, the Pope's planning stuff sounds like a cope to me almost like it's, it's like, well, if, if, if I concede to any of this stuff, having uh, any kind of error whatsoever to it, it's almost like Catholicism falls apart for them. Like the yeah. whole Catholic faith falls apart for them. If there's any kind of an issue there. And I think you, uh, I think you really have to think about when the apostles, when Jesus gets arrested and the apostles scatter or he dies on the cross and the apostles are in the upper room. And it looks like 
this isn't the Messiah. I mean, this isn't the church. This doesn't look like the church, but it is the church. There's no miracles going on at the time of the crucifixion. The miracles come after. And I think we kind of have to keep that perspective in view. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think what I think some folks, they, they want Catholicism to be so utterly persuasive all the time. They have to have it put out on a silver platter because their epistemology reaches falsification far too quickly, you know, and um, they're not ready to endure with some of the um, confusing moments that, you know, God, God, God himself, you know, has proven to purposefully allow his people to go through confusing times. Yeah. Like the, look at the duration of the Israelites in Egypt. Yeah. You know, how long were they in there before God finally heard their cries? You know, well, you know, obviously slave, this, they were slaves and that was getting ratcheted up there. But even then, you know, when they're in the wilderness, the first generation don't even go into the promised land. Yeah. Then yeah, when, it's like, God, you take us, you take us out of slavery and then you just leave us here. It's like, right. Yeah. yeah you think? So, and, and also, uh, when the Israelites were taken out of their land and brought into exile, you know, and the exilic prophets came and, you know, preached repentance and the promises of a future of salvation, though the duration of time there, you know, it, it must've been confusing for them to believe that God would still keep his promises. And yet God was faithful. None of us, none of us go back in that time and say, Oh, you know, it, 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 you know, I, uh, these people could have left for good reasons because, you know, the, 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 the epistemic persuasiveness of the covenant under Israel was not put out on a silver platter. So yeah. I obviously would have left and, you know, inquired somewhere else, you know. And some of them did. The Samaritans some did, did, right? Some of them did. Some of them did fail and 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 walk away and then start incorporating these other gods into the that's what the Samaritans are. The Samaritans are heretics, right? Yeah. They they're 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 a break off that they start bringing these other gods in. That's you know, it's that's really yeah. what they are. So so I mean with when it comes to the papacy, there are certain things that can't happen because if they do then we know Catholicism's wrong. You know, yeah. it would be if if the Jewish people were able to prove that Jesus, you know, his corpse was still in the tomb, for example. Yeah. But that would have been it, right? Yeah. Um, so there are some things that if they happen would be the end of Catholicism. We can't deny that. Um, but you know, we have our confidence and we also, you know, we also don't want to add what God has not revealed. And I think a lot of people today, I see it on Twitter, on Facebook, people are, they're, they're getting this idea of like infallible safety and, and the, 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 that the papacy is going to be so protected. It's Christ vicar, you know, yeah. the Holy father. And, and, and so they can't really understand how the papacy can be a source of scandal or a source of, what Paul calls the Judaizers. He called them enemies of the cross. You know, could it be that a Pope could become an enemy of the cross, you know? And um, 
I mean, and there's I, a time where Peter, after the resurrection, will only eat with the Jews and he won't eat with the Gentiles in front of the Jews, right? Yeah. As the Pope, he's scandalizing these new converts that are coming in. Yeah. And that was used and throughout history to, you know, when certain popes, like Pope pa Pascal II, issued a decree allowing lay investiture. You had the cardinals left and right saying, look, you can't do any more than Peter could. And Paul stood in his face. Um, but, you know, you have a lot of people going back and forth on these issues today. And I think what we need is, you know, we need to have some good discussions with people who know what they're talking about. What we're seeing is a lot of one-way conversations. You got one guy on his YouTube channel yeah. sounding like he knows everything. And there's nobody there to say, well, to challenge. Give, me, give me a moment to say something. Yeah. Nobody. And it's happening on both sides. Mind it's happening you. on like, both sides. Like, if anybody yeah. thinks he's just talking about one particular person, it's happening, it's happening all over. You see, that's yeah. why I never liked the idea of me coming on and doing a solo show. I always wanted to have Rob with me, and then I wanted to make these conversations because sometimes I'm going to get something wrong, like saying, well, maybe Mortal Sin, one Mortal Sin will send you to hell, and then Rob calls me out and says, uh, actually, that's defeat, eh? So, like, that's <laughs> the point of this, right? Like, you have these conversations, and and you can get called out when you maybe go too far with something or you make a mistake with something. And it actually leads to a fruitful dialogue. Yeah. I mean, look, I like, you, you know, this is the perfect time to teach how to maintain good friendship in a time of serious disagreement. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure that had to happen during the Great Western Schism. Yeah. You know, you had saints on more than one side of the dispute over who was the real pope well right now we're in a situation where the papacy has basically become shrouded in uncertainty mm -hmm. but it's one man but it's still a mist it's a mystery and yeah, listen uh, but there is something mysterious about the character of peter himself right like Peter is the only person in all of scripture that Jesus calls Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. He's a he's a weird character. He doesn't even say that to Judas, but he says it to Jesus. Yeah, I mean, he says it to yeah, Peter. It's Peter. like the, it, Peter is, he does scandalous things throughout the gospel, right? He's putting his foot in his mouth constantly. He's like, yeah. like it, it, he is a scandal in, in, in his own character in the gospels. And I think, um, I don't know, man. I just, I think that uh, we all just need to, especially looking at it from, uh, from, from a Catholic perspective, we always see that history rhymes, right? Like you see some of these patterns reemerging. They've happened in the past uh, to say that, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, we've had some pretty awful popes in the past too. I know Francis is different, but we've had, some awful periods in, in church history. We have, we have, but you know, I, I tell some people this because, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, look, you know, um, if you're, if you're surprised by Pope Francis, um, just look at the gospels, you know, look at Judas. That's one, tw one, one twelfth of Jesus's ministry was scandalous. It's like, well, let's get the comparison fair. Okay. It, this is not Judas doing this. Imagine if on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and started preaching and he preached fiducia supplicans. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Now we're getting and, and he stayed and he stayed pushing it for another 30 years. You know, that would be I don't think it's possible. I don't think that I don't think that would yeah. that would have been possible, right? Because it was so that's just so crippling to the church. So I, I think we are in a very unique uh situation with yeah. uh, with Pope Francis just because of the level he's gone, the duration he's gone, and the way that he doesn't lose sleep over it. You know, he's just doing his thing and he doesn't really care. And, about- and basically saying, Yeah, I don't worry about schism. What do you mean you don't worry about schism? Yeah. How would you not worry about schism? It's the body of Christ. Like you that's what I think is the hardest thing for me. It's that um you know, I uh, all this talk of like going to the margins, right? From right from his early on in his papacy, it was we're going to go out to the margins. And I think from that first comment that he said that his intent, the margins in his mind was always about incorporating people in same sex unions somehow into the church. Like I think that was his intent from the beginning. It from, just took. Yeah. I read that. Just, in, I remember when Amoris Letizia came out. I got up at four a.m. Um, and I knew that Italian time, you know, they published it and everything. So I, I I read it before I went to work. And as I was reading it, I was like, I knew it. He was going to do it. I, I knew exactly what he was doing. I knew exactly what he was thinking. And, and and I thought to myself, there's no reason why this can't be applied to homosexuality. You know? mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's like, but even the way he did it, it's like it's just so incoherent. Well, he, he tells you that he tells you, look, uh, you know, dogma has not changed, and the yeah. church can't the church can't te- change its teaching. Um, but you know, the, the the best way to get to an individual person is through the the context of a gay couple and their togetherness. <laughs> It just makes no sense. I mean, if the man just once, if the man just once said, "Yes, we want, we want to call people to repentance," you know, so just something a little, you know. I mean, but listen, this is where we are, so it is what it is. We don't. I. I, That's why I've really have appreciated your approach because you don't shy away from discussing the difficult things, and they don't scandalize you. Like, I really do think people need to recognize that when the dust settles from this papacy. Because it will settle. Francis won't live forever. And when the dust settles from it, the papacy will still be intact. We'll still have the chair of Peter. It's just going to be a little bit bumpy for a while. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I think, you know, we're, we, we should not be expected to have some sort of scientific analysis on how to stay calm. We need to turn to the father like little children. Yeah. That's, that's what's going to build our faith is that, no, we don't have a solution to this issue right now, because I, I get bombarded with these questions all the time. Eric, you're talking about this, you're talking about that. What's the solution? What are we to do? I said, believe like a child. That's what you yeah. should do. I don't have, yeah, and, and I don't build- have a, a scientific answer for you. You know, no, I think I think the solution is build the kingdom on earth right so you have to you have to start with your family you start with building the kingdom in your family you try to incorporate it with your parish and you try to build a small enclave and some 
kind of like the Benedict option that uh, Rodrier was talking about, right? You got to build a little bit of a fortification around because it's going to be rough for a little while. And you need to, you need to be listening to things that build your faith up and not just searching out this controversy and the scandal. You need to know what's going on, but don't just feed off that stuff. That's not, <laughs> that's not yeah. the way to go, you know? Well, that's what I've done. Like, you know, people will notice um, I, I tend to, to focus a lot of my work. Um, although I've written on Pope Francis a little bit the last four or five months, but the majority of my work, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, right now I'm going through a course on my book, uh, Melchizedek and the Last Supper. Um, I'm studying, I've got um, debates going with a Protestant on the Eucharist. Um, I wrote a yeah, book. We on should the do, play. we should do a series on, on, on the church fathers because I've always been intimidated by the fathers. I never know where to start. It would be really cool if we did like a, a, a series on like going through St. Gregory of Nyssa or something, you know, yeah. I think people would love that because there's not many people out there doing it where it's digestible because I've tried to read some of the fathers and they're just like, it's like, Whoa, that went right over my head. Like if you think, if you think scripture goes over your head, some of the fathers will go right over your head and you need somebody to kind of help you through it a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. You know, if you, and, and what you'll find is you'll find the truth of Catholicism. Yeah. And and what that's going to do is it's going to pump you to stay Catholic. You know, you don't need to like get 101 far-fetched possibilities as to why Pope Francis is the best pope in the world. Yeah. You don't need that. Um you can just get charged in our the sources of our faith. Read the scripture, read read tradition, read the church fathers, read the good popes, you know, and um and and hang out with clear-headed folks who can be your friend even when you disagree with them or they disagree with you. And that you know, they know how to handle you know, criticism. You know, that yeah. that's that's one thing that's key right now is being able to handle criticism and uncertainty unanswered questions if there was any if there was any time where catholics needed to learn how to be content with unanswered questions it's now yeah dude i think these conversations are really important i think people need to see especially content creators that are in this space talking to each other and seeing that we're not at each other's throats because i think you know, when you break off into your little tribes and it's like, well, I'm a Tim Gordon guy. Well, I'm a Taylor Marshall guy. Well, I'm a this guy. I'm a, I'm a Michael Lofton guy. Right. You wind up at odds with each other. We're supposed to all be brothers, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. we're supposed to be Christian brothers. And it's like, you might have a little disagreement here or there, but come on, man, there's, there's gotta be some Christian charity to give each other. That's right. And, and yeah. And, and the, the key there is um, maintaining communication. And then also, you know, um, bring in accountability. You know, if, if there's always a witness and a brother who can help reconcile two people who have disagreement. I mean, Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. That's our number one job, you know, is yeah. maintaining peace in the, bo the I, body. I take Christ. that so seriously, Eric. It's, it's, um, I'm, I've been accused of being too amicable, um, by some people that I, I really respect. It's like, dude, you're too amicable with this person. But it's like, I really do think 
that if if I have anything to add to this arena, it's being a peacemaker because I dude, I, like I'm watching my brothers at at war. Sometimes it feels like like when I see people, I, when I see the, the back and forth, it's like, come on, man. I hate it. I hate it. I want to see everybody. Uh, I love you all, brothers. Not one denied an interview that I reached out to start to start Truth World. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Truth World, if you guys aren't subscribed, go check out his YouTube channel. He interviewed Eric. He interviewed Peter Kwasnev, Kwasnevsky. Uh, he just started, but he's got a couple of good uh, interviews up there. I checked them out. But uh, we're going to get him on this channel, too. So, um, all right. So what's the name of the book, Eric? Um, well, the latest book I've wrote written you talking about the latest yeah one? it's the papacy in the first millennium yeah it's called the papacy revisiting the debate between catholics and orthodox yeah okay now you have several books though right yeah i've got one two three four five books yeah wait somebody's making a point listen i said i'm here to make peace amongst the brothers i said nothing about the sisters I don't care if you girls rip your heads off. I'm not worried about you women. I'm worried about the men. Peace is tranquility of order, and that's just not possible sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, we're gonna jump over to locals. I want to. I want to get. I want to get. Are we actually doing gritty. locals? Ant? Yeah, let's do a short one. I gotta go to work tomorrow very early, but I I want to dig into a little bit over there. Uh, yeah. So if you guys haven't yet, go subscribe to our locals. Come on, you guys gotta. If you guys love the show, what's five bucks a month? You guys giving sixteen dollars to Netflix for that filth? Come on, you gotta support this is the person who always once a day texts me. Oh, this is what I'm watching on Netflix today. I'm just yeah, but I also subscribe <laughs> to Avoiding Babylon's Locals. Okay. <laughs> All right, Eric, dude, thank you so much for coming on with us, man. I, we're gonna, I, dude, I really would be interested in doing either a biblical series or a series on the fathers with you. Like, if you would, you ever want to do something like that? Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk. Yeah, I'd be interested because I think that people need some some. uh some hope, you know, and I think diving into the tradition will always give people hope. Amen. So, all right, Rob, take us out. All right. Um, so, all right. So the thing is, I remember, like, I used to watch Reason and well, Theology. Aunt, it was one of my. F- Aunt, do you want what? this on Twitter too, or do you want me to take it off of there? No, you can leave it on Twitter. Okay. I want to always give people a way to see it if they don't pay. But um, the uh, I used to love Reason and Theology. I used to love watching some of the disagreements. I, I, I remember like watching shows with you, Tim Flanders, Michael Lofton. These were such fruitful conversations. Uh, you know, some of them talked me off the ledge at certain points, but then at a certain point, it kind of just became the Michael Lofton show instead of reason that the odds like, what, what were some of those fractures? What, what started there? Well, you know, um, when we first started reason in theology, we had no idea what it was going to become. Um, yeah. So 
you know, Michael was Eastern Orthodox when it started. Uh, I was Catholic. He was working a regular day job. This is stuff that he has said in his public testimony anyway. So, so you so he was still Eastern Orthodox when you guys I started know the Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was Eastern Orthodox. I was Catholic. It was supposed to be a show that was going to host our conversations that we had in private that, you know, we would talk for hours about things. And we thought to ourselves, like, man, wouldn't it be really nice to just, like, record this and have other people here and maybe help us out, tell us to read this? Maybe they're going to get helped by what we're saying. So that's how it started. And we didn't know if it was going to get past 50 followers, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, like, the issue of, like, it becoming a business or nothing like that was even a thought. And I was never in it for money. I never got one cent. In fact, I still haven't gotten one cent from yeah. YouTube, um, even in my own channel. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, but for, for anybody that doesn't know, you don't make money on YouTube unless you're no. unless you're getting a hundred thousand views per video. Like you get peanuts. I think yeah. me and Rob get like a hundred bucks each a month or something. It's it's mm. nothing. Like so. Uh, you know, uh, but after a while, he started. He brought another Eastern Orthodox guy on, so there was two Orthodox, one Catholic. Then we brought Elijah Yassi, um, another Orthodox priest. We brought a Muslim on. We brought William Albrecht, and so after a while, it, it started to grow. You know, mm -hmm. and people started to enjoy the show, and and then Michael started to make like these billboards with like me. William and and himself and um you know so it got pretty big and uh but none of us had a very we didn't have assignments none of us were you know like I was always getting people on the show I'd, I'd go to I'd go to universities and go through the faculty and start sending emails to people who want to come on to talk about their specialty you know and that's how we got on a lot of the we got a lot of good people on yeah um, but none of us had like assignments. It was just a free, you know, uh, it was just a, 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 something that we all got involved with and none of us were trying to get anything out of it other than a chance to learn you and know? add to the conversation, right? Like add to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Like part of the reason I wanted to start this was because I wanted to add something to the conversation. It was like, I was hearing a lot of things going on and I was hearing, I, I saw kind of these groups breaking off and I'm like, I think I have something to add to the conversation. I have a couple of thoughts that I think nobody's talking about and I kind of want to bring people together. So I'm assuming you guys wanted to just bring your own flavor to the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for those of you who don't know Michael's background, you know, he has shared in his public testimony that he was once a rad trad and left the Catholic Church in 2015 or 2016. And I was there with him when that happened. And, you know, I, I you know, I, uh, I stayed friends with him. You know, I yeah. couldn't talk. I couldn't talk him off the ledge. You know, he, 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 he had to, you know, he, he had his issues. But when he came back, you know, so we started, you know, I kept my friendship with him. So when he went to orthodoxy, um, we said, hey, let's create this show where we're talking about Catholicism, orthodoxy, church history. 
But what ended up happening was he started to he started to look into the Catholic Church again, which is something I I didn't expect. Yeah, you know he was Orthodox, so uh, he started to look into Catholicism more and more. And so as R and T got bigger, he he actually came back to the Catholic Church, and that happened while the other Orthodox was still one of the contributors. And that created a little, I think it created a little bit of friction. Um, Craig Trulia, that was the first Eastern Orthodox guy. Um, don't want to get into that story, but yeah, he yeah, yeah. had to go. Um, and I think what ended up happening was Michael wanted it to become a Catholic apologetics channel, you know, and none of us had a problem with that because I was Catholic, William yeah. was Catholic. Um, you know, but we still tried to keep like Father Patrick, the Orthodox priest. We still tried to get um, uh, Turretin fan, Reform, uh, Reform Presbyterian. We still tried to keep it eclectic, but some of the shows started to get more and more like, okay, Catholicism is true, and we're you know we're going to promote Catholicism, and then eventually he had to get over his hurdle with Pope Francis because Michael did not like Pope Francis. I mean, he, he has told his audience that we all know it. Um, so in order, I think in order, so he basically, he had a big change of mind to, to say, to say the least. He just, he started to look at things differently and, um, he started but that was and that was kind of a slow process too because i remember at first he was kind of like just trying to be charitable about it it was seemed like the, the the further francis went the harder he would start doubling down and like it, it was a yes. weird thing it wasn't like an overnight switch he he because at first he was like well you know we should because i remember him talking like he would still talk to people who were like you know francis is the pope but you know he's he's not the he's a bad poet and then he just wouldn't even have a conversation with anyone who even had uh maybe a confused attitude towards francis yeah well i was one of them i i i'm i i always i've always been very concerned about Pope Francis. And I was never shy about that on reason and theology. So it, it got to the point where um, Michael started to produce shows where he was bringing shame on people who were finding what Pope Francis was doing, what the hierarchy was doing, what the Vatican was doing as uh scandalous yeah. you know and and so he started to slowly shift and say well wait a minute maybe the cause of the scandal is the trads not pope francis but a particular misinterpretation of pope francis and when that happened i kind of stepped in and i said that's not true and it's abundantly clear that that's not true. And so I, I made it clear. I didn't agree with the way he was shaming trads and conservatives, people who were not rad trads. Yeah. That's a, that's the point. It's not like our audience is not rad trads. 90% of our audience right. goes to the Novus Ordo dude. It's like, right. but they're still seeing it. And, and I described it as 
to to think that Francis uh, is uh, like to to interpret it the way Michael does in my eyes is the same level of like cognitive dissonance that is required to say that a man in a dress is a woman. Like, it's just, come on, don't tell me I'm not seeing yes. what I'm seeing. Yes. I see what I see. Yes, exactly. So, and, and, and that's what, like, for example, uh, I gave an imaginary example uh, a few days ago. I said, I, I said, what, what would it happen? What would happen if Pope Francis allowed a female Anglican bishop in a Catholic church to celebrate the Eucharist. And then Pope Francis received communion from her. Yeah. Right. There would be outrage, right? Well, I almost picture the Pope's blainers coming out and saying, well, look, Anglicans don't have orders. Females can't per, per, uh, confect the sacrament. He just took a piece of bread from a lady. That, that's not even crazy to say. So did did any of them discuss the Justin Welby situation? Well, that's why I'm lead, that's why I bring this up. It's because you see how crazy it would be to come out and say, "Why are the trads losing their minds? He just took a piece of bread from a uh, from a you know a fully vested female Anglican bishop, right? He's it's just a piece of bread, right? Uh, well, that's crazy. Well. I didn't think that Michael Lofton was going to defend what happened with Justin Welby, but he did. He did. And he came up with a bunch of far-fetched reasons for why this is not a big problem. And, you know, his reasoning was that, well, Anglican orders we're still kind of iffy on that nowadays. You know, yes, we used to think it was completely sure. Now there's like people questioning it. And who knows? Maybe Justin Welby is part of a line that comes from a schismatic bishop that came from the Catholic Church. So he actually had valid orders. And maybe Justin Welby who was ordained into the diaconate in 1992. Maybe he has. That was the first defense, which is far-fetched. Yeah. The second defense was, well, even Benedict said that when Anglicans celebrate the Eucharist, it's not a real Eucharist, but there is some value in it. You do get calories from the bread, I suppose. <laughs> you do get calories, <laughs> <from the bread. laughs> right, Rob? Yeah, I, but, you but, you but, win but, the you win the conversation. But Eric, That's think about it, think it, it's, <laughs> it's true. There is some value. Yeah, but right? think about the think about the shift in the Catholic conversation because there was a time where we would call that sacrilege. That's right. That's what it is. We would have called that's, that sacrilege. We would have said that's a is. mockery of the sacrament. That's right. That's right. This is this is what um, anybody from 1955 backwards mm -hmm. would have said is an indefensible act of sacrilege. Right. Well, according to Lofton, he had some far fetched reasons to defend what Pope Francis. And then he said this. If worse comes to worse and none of my explanations work then that just means that Pope Francis was wrong and my position still not disproven 
because I don't believe ability. It's like, but wait a minute, you're not giving due acknowledgement of all the all of the lines that were crossed. Yeah. The scandal upon scandal. Francis yeah, sending out an Anglican because this whole project of ecumenism is doomed because none of it has bringing the outsiders into the fold in mind. It's dialogue for the sake of dialogue. Something needs to change about that. Like at least under Benedict, um, under Benedict, it was he was having these conversations with the Lutherans and they were trying to hammer out something doctrinal on justification together, right? Where they could come right. to a joint statement. It was like that was that was the the goal in mind. It's like let's let's try to find some place of unity here where with Francis, it's like there's there's no need for unity. Let's just just be just let's be just be friends. Yeah. Let's yeah. just be friends and call it communion. Well, look, there was a, he was in a Lutheran church one time and a Lutheran got up and asked him. And this is recorded on YouTube, so anybody can go look at look this up. She said she said, uh, "Pope Francis, I am the wife of a Catholic. I'm a Lutheran, so I don't believe in Catholicism." When I go to church with my husband, can I receive communion? And everybody was like, whoa, that was a bold question to ask, right? So everybody's waiting for the yes or the no. What he says is this three-minute long explanation of how Lutherans and Catholics have a shared baptism and you know there's differences in the language about the Eucharist, and although he wouldn't give the permission, he kind of recommends her to kind of do a discernment and then go based off of that. <laughs> I remember that because I think because what I really do think is that the ultimate goal is open communion and it's and we've lost this understanding of how sacred the sacrament is man and it's scary because the language saint paul uses about those who do not discern the body and blood of our lord is yeah. damnation i mean that's the language you you drink damnation upon yourself if you do not discern the body and blood of our lord and and the it's just this yeah. watering down, this watering down, and the eh, this isn't that important. This isn't that important. It's 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 detrimental that us as fathers, especially, make sure we convey the faith to our children because it's obviously not coming from the church itself anymore, and it's it's been passed down to our responsibility to make. I mean, it always has been anyway, but it's yeah. very important nowadays that we as fathers step up. Yeah, and what you just described there is is you use the term watered down. That's the problem with the with the Francis pontificate is that he's completely watered things down, giving the impression that Catholicism is changing its beliefs. But yeah. see, here, here's the difficulty: if 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 you have a if you have a judge in in Milwaukee and a judge in Illinois or, or, or Chicago, Illinois, and they both hold to the same law. The law of the land. Let's just you know call it your 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 civil law of the land. But the Milwaukee judge has a very like pobrecito 
outlook on criminals. He's like, man, but look, you know, they're just all having a hard time and you don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. And, and so he's just like handing people back out on the street and lowering sentences and basically exonerating criminals. Yeah, I'm in New York. I know exactly what that's like. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a a judge in Milwaukee like that, but then if if the judge in Chicago, and it's I'm not trying to match reality here. This is Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) If the judge in Chicago actually said, well, wait a minute, it doesn't care. I don't care how I feel. I need to protect the common good. I need to distribute justice. So both judges hold to the same letter of the law. But if you live in Milwaukee and then move to Chicago, it will feel like a completely different world and therefore a completely different religion. Yeah. But they're both holding to the same legal code. Yeah. And and so that's the problem with Francis is that he has protected himself because anybody who wants to come with sword and shield about how he has changed teaching, he's got Neo from the Matrix. He can do all. Well, well, it's even worse than that, because the the judge in Illinois, Francis would yank. Yeah, (laughs) that's the you know what I mean? So that's that's what makes it even tougher, because. Anytime somebody in any kind of position of um, of uh, the you know of the, uh, in the church, any, any a priest, a bishop, anything, Francis will put pressure on them to conform to his more you know Milwaukee style. Yeah, and that's and that's what he wants. He wants the Milwaukee style universally distributed throughout the whole church, yeah. while still confessing. The, the Illinois style, holding to the confession of the Illinois style, but in practice, it's it's the Milwaukee style. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he's saying, look, he's like, you know, like, what well, if you're talking about what we believe, go 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 read Denzinger. I remember one one Archbishop Bruno during the days of Amoris Letizia and the family synods. They, you know, somebody I think it was Diana Montagna said, is church teaching changing? Yeah. And I think Bruno, who's very much a Francis thinker, um, said, look, if you want doctrine, go read Denzinger. You know, yeah. th- go read the dogma of the church. What we're dealing with is people and their problems. Yeah. And how to reach out to people with their problems. And they don't see the, the concurrency of the expression of doctrine in pastoral management. And so they just think that this is kind of like, you can kind of be like Jesus and just like forgive people left and right and just treat things like, you know, repentance on slow motion. You know, I call it repentance on extreme slow motion. You said something that, because I think the biggest problem with fiducia is not even the language in fiducia. It's the gesture itself that lends the the it lends this um, appearance that the church is changing its doctrine and that the church will eventually come around to accepting same sex marriage yeah. and like it's giving this appearance as if the church will change. Look, guys, the church moves in centuries. Slow, you know, give us some time. We're moving in that direction for you, and people are very hopeful. And it's an evil lie. Like, like you're that document is an evil lie because you're giving these people the impression that God is okay with sodomy 
just not yet. Just give us some time. We'll get there. Well, yeah, it, it basically, it, and that's why I like the way that the Africans responded because they basically said, we strongly uphold the first half of the document. And that's why we can't put into practice the second yeah. half of the document. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the truth. The first, the first half of the document is simply just a reaffirmation of Catholic the teaching. Catholic doctrine, right? Well, in order to protect that, one of the African bishops says, we can't do, we from paragraph 31 yeah. following, we, we can't do that. Now, Eric, even in that controversial paragraph 34, because you saw the way they did the language, it wasn't, if a person is, if a person recognizes they, they have faults and they just want a blessing, but it's not, if a person recognizes that, that homosexuality is a sin and they want a blessing, it's this generic, if a person recognizes they're imperfect and they want a blessing, they could come as a couple. We're not blessing the union. But yeah. the, like It's so imprecise and, and vague that it's just a problem. And it is nobody. It is. Nobody on that side wants to see that. Look, you're all this document did was open up a can of worms and give. I've explained it as this is basically Samorum Pontificum for the James Martins of the world. Like it gives them, <laughs> it gives them permission without having to go through their bishop to go and do this thing on this. It's Samorum Pontificum for gay blessings for the, every individual priest who runs a New Ways Ministry type ministry. Now their bishop can't do anything because these guys have. A car blanche from Rome. Yeah. Well, look at the context. The context was uh, everybody was trying to figure out why Pope Francis didn't do anything with Germany. And now we know. We yeah. know it's because they were planning to throw them a juicy bone yeah. to chew on for now. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, guys, don't make a thing with the bishops' conference because that'll look like we're not in union. Just let your priest do whatever the hell your priest want to do. Right, exactly. So <laughs> the context, you know, and and Francis, you know, oh, Fernandez and Francis, when you know these these people don't realize what they're what what they're doing. Like the, the fans of the Pope's planers, uh, they don't understand how Cardinal Fernandez or Pope Francis thinks because for them all pope francis has to do is say it's a blessing of the individuals not the union and they they're like wow total win total win <laughs> amen <laughs> it's like well hold on a second you you don't understand what he's doing okay that's not i mean nobody i mean i've never said that he was trying to change the letter of doctrine i mean my first article said this is an attempt to keep doctrine while doing this insane pastoral option yeah. that's going to certainly undermine the doctrine. Yeah. And so you can't go by affirmations, verbal affirmations. That's that's that we've all known that's what Pope Francis has been doing, you know. So the yeah, the the it's definitely um it's definitely I like how you say some more pontificum for the uh that's what it is. Some more pontificum for, for gay blessings. It's like you guys look, James Martin, don't worry, your bishop can't do anything to you anymore. New Ways Ministry, don't worry, your bishop can't do anything to you anymore. You guys can just do whatever you want to do. Nobody's yeah. gonna stop you. 
And then you have people say, well, it's got to be done in a way that doesn't cause scandal. But the problem is the document itself, itself is the scandal. <laughs> <laughs> like, And, oh, and how do you do it? I mean, how how do you get this done? I mean, they come up together. They they know what the church teaches. And they insist on being together. Yeah. That already tells you that they're not ready to open their life to God. They're still sending a big fat no to and the whole thing's about heaven. revolution. It's about revolution. It's just like the, the women who want to become priests and they say, What about the women who are called by God? No woman is called by God by the to, to the priesthood. No woman is called by God to the priesthood. So what you're telling me is you don't care what God actually thinks, you just want to overturn the church. The whole thing's about revolution and change. And yeah. it's just that spirit of revolution that just it's in everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's yeah. people that are out to try to overturn everything, but I really do have to go to bed, man. I have to, Eric, I want to definitely get you back on again, but we'll talk offline. Um, yeah. I, I sent you my phone number in the DM. Um, maybe yeah. uh, shoot me yours. Dude, if you have any like good ideas for something we could do together, because I really do think conversations are so important, man. Yeah. It's, if you, if you give me like an assignment, like, dude, read this and then we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> it together. I'll, I'll like Rob, too. We'll give him homework. Yeah, give me homework. I'll do it, especially if something's on audiobook because I spend a lot of time driving. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a blast. Yeah, it was really fun meeting you, man. You're an awesome, awesome thinker. I like the way you uh explain things. So, um, Thank all right, you. yeah, we'll yeah, see. We'll you guys are, you guys are, uh, you guys are turning into a really good show. I mean, I love listening to you guys now. So, oh, I mean, thank, thank you, man. Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's you guys are real, and you guys are very, are hilarious. <laughs> 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 great. We try to keep it light for the most part. Every once in a while, we'll delve into some of these tougher things, but it's I find it I find it uh, more interesting to just talk to different people, man. Just like. Yeah, you know, how are you handling this? Because we're having a hard time, but you know, we're all figuring all right. it out together. So, yeah, dude, it was really nice to meet you. We will do this again soon. Amen. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm.